The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings, everybody, and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Daniel Zingali, who's been in and around government for many years here in Sacramento, now is in the private sector uh, as an advocate and as, uh, I guess, uh, I guess a strategist in a lot of ways. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today and chatting. John and Tim, great to be back with you guys. So first off, you are not in government anymore per se. Now you mentioned you're on the Delta Stewardship Council, but you're not in a daily grind strategy communications role in government now. So how's that feel? You've kind of foot loose and having a good time, I would think. Um, it does feel good. And I loved those jobs. I had a great time um, in public service. I particularly enjoyed the communications work. I did policy for a long time and policy and communications, but I really enjoyed the challenge of trying to engage millions of Californians in um, government and all of that stuff, which most people think is boring or hostile. That was a real challenge. I loved it. Um, and I love uh, semi-retirement. I'm mostly retired, a little more than semi, and uh, enjoying that thoroughly. You, you think it's tougher now to, to uh, get a message out there, given the hyper-partisanship that's out there, and the, it seems a general degeneration of civil discourse, not only in California, I think across the country. Is it harder to get a message out with all this white noise behind us? No question. Yeah, I mean, honestly, my... Um, exit from that world coincided with a set of challenges, which are, um, I just can't imagine how you try to take on this current atmosphere where everyone gets to select their source of news and information. Most of us, by human nature, select it from sources that agree with what we think already. And so you just kind of get this cycle of everyone having their views reinforced uh, in opposition to others. And I, I just think it's very very strange to me when, you know, when I was doing it, most of the years I was doing it, it was more the art of persuasion. I was trying to convince a majority of people of a certain point of view. Um, now it's really just more, I think, like combat between opposing sides that are very set in their views. You know, um, we don't have any video on our podcast, but before we started talking um, for the podcast, you mentioned that uh, you were on, it looked like a ranch with a couple donkeys behind you. Uh, so you're up in the boonies, you're up in the mountains somewhere with farm animals. So how's that working out? Um, I love it. It's a whole different aspect of my personality that I didn't know was there, but I've discovered is made for me. It's probably in my genes. My not very long ago, my family were goat herders in Sicily. So I've just discovered that I love uh, being with mo the, mostly the donkeys, but we have uh, some other animals too. It's, you know, there used to be an, an old expression you've probably heard about when a person gets old, you put them out to pasture. Well, <laughs> I have literally put myself out to pasture. I'm sitting in the pasture right now and loving it. It's beautiful, quiet, and um, the animals are a little less complicated than the world of politics. What kind do you have? You got donkeys. We saw those. Are there others up there? Do you, do you have a uh, I have, yeah, kind of a menagerie. Wonderful uh, flock of chickens of uh, Rhode Island Reds and barred rock hens. They're really reliable layers. We have fresh organic eggs, more than we can handle. We have to find ways to share them. Um, and then also on my list of favorites is our German Shepherd Sparky and our orange tabby cat macaroni. So there's, there's a lot of activity running around here. 
Do you eat any of your chickens? No, I don't, but they have names. <laughs> they have <laughs> Actually, names? yeah. The, the, uh, and, you know, plus the, the eggs are on a cost-benefit analysis. You get a lot more from a hen in a lifetime of laying eggs than from one chicken dinner. But I, I don't I don't see myself doing that. They, I actually named them after my mom's sisters. She came out from a big farm family. And uh, her sisters had names that, frankly, are very suitable for chickens like Mabel and Lucy and Bessie. So uh, you know, I, I just I couldn't eat them. I had friends who uh, who had small farm, like they had small animals. They said, "Yeah, you don't name anything you're going to eat. You don't name." That was kind yeah, of I think that's that's a good rule. <laughs> hey, you mentioned uh, earlier we were chatting that um, y- you had uh, you were there when they did the when Arnold Schwarzenegger did the videotape, an amazingly effective videotape. I saw it, I guess, last week. He made a direct plea to Russia over the Ukrainian Ukraine invasion. And uh, it was amazing. He Schwarzenegger um, mentioned his Russian uh, admiration, his admiration for Russians and his connections. And he mentioned uh, a lot about his personal life. And uh, I thought it was kind of an amazing statement. Went about nine minutes. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how that came together? You know, um, I was there for when it launched, when he when he put it up and out there um, in the world. And the response was just tremendous. Um, you know, it was very personal, as you said, John, that's what made it powerful. I, I was just in awe of him. You know, I'm a fan anyway of Arnold Schwarzenegger, having worked with him and gotten to know him. But just looking at this guy who spent his life really as a character in a narrative, um, he's a larger than life figure, as you know. And I think at this point in his life has figured out the power of narrative um, and brought it full circle to what is most personal and real about him. I've never heard him speak publicly as candidly as he did about his father and his father's role in the German army. Um, the, you know, he and, uh, and his, one of his principal staff now, a guy named Daniel Ketchell, came up with the idea of speaking directly to the Russian people. I think that was just a powerful uh, concept executed beautifully. I honestly, um, you know, I, I said to him, how is it that you did the best work you've ever done without my help? Um, and he laughed, but, uh, but I really feel that way. It's, um, I, I really think he's gone to a new level of communication and purpose. Do, do you have any idea how it was received inside Russia? Uh, obviously, there are restrictions on what you can get in there, what you can't, and people are doing workarounds there to get online. Uh, here, or at least on the, the Twitter uh, accounts I saw, had had about 11 million views the last time I checked. Do you have any notion inside Russia how, what kind of response it got or how did it resonate? I do not know that, but I do know that, um, you know, the cyber world was kind of on fire. The day I was with the governor, uh, we kept getting reports of hackers and others coming up with creative ways of trying to get it to the Russian people. Um, and, you know, courageous people in Russia getting it and sharing it each time they share it. They think they put themselves at risk in that government with that government in that atmosphere. So I, I have a high degree of confidence that it will find a way when something that powerful is out there. And it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Let's face it. He's been the most famous man in the world for many years and, um, has a lot of fans in Russia. So I think he's, you know, uniquely positioned to be a messenger on the truth about what's happening. You're, uh, Daniel, you're also involved right now with the group. Um, uh, is it Capital 100? It's a sort of a futurist taking a look at the future. And what, yeah, California 100 Commission. Yes. California 100. 
what is, what are we looking forward to in the future? Do we have a good, bad, or indifferent future technologically? Do you see any big changes? I mean, we've all been talking about autonomous vehicles, more electric cars, uh, that kind of thing. Is is that what you guys are looking at? Uh, what's involved there? Well, I mean, the, first of all, it's a really exciting group to be a part of. There are a lot of young people, a lot of brilliant minds, uh, truly representing um, the diversity of California coming together and thinking you know, what is likely ahead in the next 15, 20, even 100 years? And what interests me most, what can we do about it? So the conversation starts, um, frankly, in some fa fairly dark places when the experts lay out for you the situation, whether it's with what's happening in the climate crisis and more floods, fires, and hurricanes, all those things that we know uh, are human-driven, um, and other challenges. It's no secret now that democracy itself is kind of on the ropes, not just here, but in many parts of the world. Um, people are losing or have lost confidence in most of the institutions that hold up a system like ours. So, you know, we start with all those challenges. And then, um, especially because there are young people at the table who are just innately optimistic, you have to be when you're young, I think, uh, or you ought to be. Um, you know, then the solutions start coming to the table. And so it's been great fun just kind of picking those apart, you know, comparing them, kicking the tires. In fact, this week, uh, there are four of our, I think our four first reports from the California 100 Commission are coming out. You can find them at California Commission, California100.org. Um, and they're going to be really good stuff. Very, I think, inspiring and hopeful. Basically, the bottom line is, people are optimistic. Would that be fair to say? I mean, over time, over the future. Cautiously. I mean, I'd have to say cautiously optimistic. You just, uh, you, you can't, it would be, I think, denying the evidence to just say flat out we're optimistic. But, um, but if there's the will, it's what we're missing at this point is the political will to make some profound changes, to make some sacrifices, to confront particularly the inequities in this state. You know, we, 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 we rightfully think that California is ahead of the nation and most of the world in many respects. Um, that is true. We're, we're more honest about confronting the climate crisis. I think we're in a healthier place in confronting issues like immigration and the racial divi divide in the country. And if we don't take some profound action on all those fronts, um, changing the very systems that have uh, fostered some of that inequity, then you know, things are likely to come apart at the seams. So it's, yes, optimistic that we will rise to the challenge, but, but never underestimate the perils of this era that we're in now. You know, so you're, you're talking about inequity, and you're right that California is really ahead of the curve in addressing climate change and a lot of other issues that are facing us. But, you know, the poverty rate in California, largely because of the cost of living, is so high here and do you you know in your reports have you really looked at anything you think would directly impact that would change change the direction there is there anything you could share with us that you've learned uh through this group uh, regarding inequity and kind of uh, addressing that in california well we're determined to i think we're starting to i can't speak for all the commissioners because we haven't you know reached those kind of conclusions but i'll say from my point of view um you're absolutely right tim we we california is a very progressive state. We have all the right words, you know, about a lot of issues um, when it comes to racial equity and so on. But the, if you look at the actual situation, 
you have millions, literally millions of people who are being left behind in this economy who are on the wrong end of this widening divide where the very, very wealthy get more and more rich and more opportunities and the people in the middle on down are having less and less opportunities and less wealth. Um, and so it is not surprising to me that people being left behind like that are losing faith in our government, in our political process, and in institutions across the board. And the only way to win them back is not by having the right language, although words matter, but that's, that is not sufficient. We have to show results. And I think my personal view is uh, the thing nobody wants to talk about and Californians are allergic to, but we have to have more progressive taxation in this state. We have to figure out a way to not just wring our hands and talk about how terrible the, the discrepancy between the very wealthy and the middle class and poor is, but what are we going to do about it? And I personally don't know of another way to address a problem that widespread on the scale of California, 40 million people, without having government play some role in that, making the wealthy and corporations who are oftentimes getting off of paying very little or nothing pay more so that we can support those things that lift people up out of poverty or struggle, like investments in education, investments in social services, investments in the things that work, not the failed ones, but the ones that are showing that they actually do make a difference in people's lives. You know, progressive in income tax for generations was viewed as a good thing. The more you earn, the more you paid. And it's not now. Somehow over the last two or three decades, it got into disrepute, maybe because of the partisan political debate or because of things that were passed or the voters view or whatever. But yeah, how would we restore that? How would we restore faith in a tax system that is equitably is balanced? I think it's going to be difficult. You're absolutely right. I'm old enough to remember when, um, you know, I knew wealthy people who believed in the progressive tax. They, they would say things like, you know, I'm in favor of paying a greater share of taxes because I make a lot of money and I feel grateful for that. And yeah. my way of showing gratitude is to give some support to the public schools and to the healthcare delivery system and the police and things that hold our society together. You don't hear that kind of talk anymore. You just hear everyone feeling like they're being squeezed. And the only way I can imagine restoring some willingness for people to invest in the collective good is to show that that investment can bring results. And I personally don't think it's enough anymore for, for us to talk about, you know, look, I invested X million dollars in fighting homelessness or invested X million dollars in public education. People want to see what they got to that. And yeah. frankly, it's probably going to take a bigger investment than we have to it. What we're doing now is not working when it comes to housing, homelessness, public education. We're, we're failing too many people on too many fronts. You know, you used to run uh, the Department of Managed Healthcare. I think that you were the initial, the premier director of that department. Do you have any thoughts now about the possibilities for a single payer system or, or universal healthcare system in California? Seems to get shot down frequently, but as we look ahead on the healthcare issues, what, what do you see there? Well, um, I was for single payer then, I'm for it now. It's, uh, you know, I heard someone ironically say single payer is the system of the future and always will be. And I, I hope that's not true. I hope one day we'll, uh, we'll implement something like what the closest 30 comparable countries in the world to ours have where it's universal and not just all profit driven. Um, you know, and the current system 
I've, it's become more personal for me. You know, when I was a regulator in the job you were just talking about, I remember people coming from rural parts of the state to public hearings and saying, you know, we can't get access to care. And I would look at the documents in front of me from the big insurers, and it would show that in the rural parts of the state, they had coverage. They had a network of doctors and hospitals and specialists. And I'd hold those papers up for people testifying and say, you know, it looks like you do have coverage out there. And these folks would always say, it's just on paper. It's not real. Well, now I'm retired. Now I'm living in the, on the rural North Coast of California most of the time. I have not been able to find a primary care physician. And my, I have insurance. I have coverage. I went to my insurance company website. There's a list of all the providers that say they're taking new patients in my rural area. Uh, most of them said they were, when I called them, were in fact not taking new patients. One of them had retired two years ago. And one of them, no joke, was deceased. So oh, wow. it was a complete wash. Not a single provider on the list is available in the area I'm in to take a new patient. So okay. I'm now living what I've heard people claim for years. Uh, no, community. What was that, John? I understood that one of the backstops for people, if they're not close to a major, to the, a medical, major medical facility, there are community clinics out there and there are smaller institutions or smaller, I guess, uh, offices or clinics, but none of those either. So you're, you're out in the boonies. Yeah, there, there is one good clinic not too far away. They're just somewhat overrun with demand from people who, like myself, haven't been able to find a doctor. So, so in fact, there have been two proposals for single-payer health care that have come up in the legislature recent, in the recent past. So Ash Kalra's bill for CalCare just came up uh, this year and failed to even get a vote. Uh, then, then I believe it was four years ago, there was another one that, that I don't even think that got out of committee. So what do you think it's going to take to get a proposal that will at least get, get to the floor or maybe get into both houses? Uh, you know, can you speak to any of the legislation that has been proposed and any of the legislation that you think might actually have a chance? Like what, what needs to happen here? So what, what, First of all, we know that these systems, these single-payer systems work better than what we have. Countries that have something resembling single-payer spend literally half of what we spend and get better results in terms of health outcomes and lifespan. The reason for that is because our unique system of healthcare delivery allows for vast profits for every sector from people who make the medical equipment to the medical groups, to the HMOs and insurance companies, drug companies, of course, notoriously making huge profits. So that's where all the money goes instead of toward keeping people healthy, and especially on the preventive side, which isn't as profitable, but in the long term saves the state money and, of course, suffering and loss of life. The only way you're going to be able to take on all of those wealthy interests who profit so obscenely from the current system is if the people demand something better. And I know that might sound a little pie in the sky, but the, the Department of Managed Healthcare that John referenced was created, and I had the opportunity to go in there and run it on behalf of patients' rights because people at that time in the late 90s rose up and demanded reform of the HMO system. HMOs at the time were notorious for collecting people's premiums, and then when they got sick, finding reasons not to, to provide care or medical interventions. And people had just had it. And so their legislators and the governor at that time got the message that people were going to throw them out of office if something wasn't done. 
And I believe the same is true with, with the overarching reform needed in the healthcare delivery system. The only thing that will break through that wall of money and lobbying and special interests profiting from the current system is if the public and the voters you know, take this, this struggling democracy we have and use it to demand something better. Well, Daniel, one last question. The, um, the possibility of single payer, uh, do you have any sense of the time frame there? A timeline? We're talking maybe a year or two or five or 10. Do you see it in the nearer future or the further, further along future? I think we'll be lucky if we, if we see that kind of change in the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the political resistance is still very entrenched, as we just saw in this last round. Um, you know, and this is a situation where we have a governor who supports single payer. Gavin Newsom knows that it is a more efficient, more cost efficient and more and a higher quality system. And yet the politics still have not aligned for it to become law. Hey, so, Daniel, I actually have a question uh, before we go. So you recently announced that you had gone into to work for a public affairs firm, the Brokaw firm uh, called Sacramento Advocates. Can you talk about your new role there? Um, it's, it is the same firm, um, and the Brokaws are a part of it, and they're good people. My engagement came at the behest of two of the most active leading partners in today's version of that firm, which are uh, Gareth Elliott, who was Jerry Brown's legislative secretary, and Panarea Avdis, who most recently was chief of staff to the lieutenant governor. Um, those two approached me about helping them think about the strategy for their firm for the next uh, year or so, maybe beyond. And uh, I was excited to do that. that those, those two whom I know best in the firm, Gareth and Pano, I think represent the best of that sector. They do their work with integrity um, and principle. They, they represent community colleges and elections officials and others who um, need a voice in government. But you know they're not the, uh, what you think of when you think of these high-priced lobbying firms, which is not really my style. Daniel Zingali, thank you so much. Thanks for chatting with us. Thanks, guys. Daniel Zingali, thank you so much for chatting with us today. And now Tim Foster and I are going to do the long-awaited feature of our program, Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The Worst Week. Worst Week. Worst Week. And our nominee this time is Eric Garcetti, Mayor of Los Angeles, uh, who has been nominated by the president to be our ambassador to India. But before he can make his passage to India, he has to be approved in the, uh, in the Senate. And that looks like it's going to be a, a hard chore. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst asked for a hold yesterday on his, uh, on his confirmation hearings. And we don't know how long that's going to last. Earlier, Charles Grassley, her fellow Republican from Iowa, wanted a hold and wants to investigate sexual harassment allegations against him. Uh, in the mayoral office, stemming from 2020. Tim, what do you think? I want to know what Iowa has against Eric Garcetti. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I, this is not good. And, I, you know, totally unrelated to Mr. Garcetti's woes, uh, I have a question. What happens if he doesn't get uh, confirmed? What ha- I mean, I'm assuming they still move move forward with the uh, the mayoral election in L.A., even if he's not going to become ambassador to India? How does that work? I have absolutely, I'm happy to tell you, no idea how that works. But my guess is, uh, my semi-educated guess is that he is, he leaves when that ambassadorship is resolved up or down. 
So the electoral, uh, the, the mayoral election in LA, I think will wind up with a new uh, mayor and it won't be Mr. Garcetti, for example, if he didn't get the ambassadorship. Hmm. No, we should uh, use our emergency lifeline call and call uh, Erica Smith, uh, friend, friend of the podcast, Erica Smith, um, and see if she could answer this for us. Yeah. Um, how long it's going to drag on, but given that these hearings now in Washington seem to drag on a long time, I think you're looking at weeks or months even before this gets resolved. This is a disaster. Tim, uh, thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. And it's John. John. Goodbye to everybody. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.